Acts chapter 12, um, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to uh, church from him, for him, by the church. Forgot to set my timer. Excuse me. I don't want to go long. Um, constant prayer was uh, offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals. So he did. And he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that it, uh, what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they told her, ah, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said to her, it's his angel. And Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go. Tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Well, last week in our verse-by-verse -verse study, uh, ongoing verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Acts. We witnessed the birth of this wonderful church in Antioch. People who were fleeing persecution found themselves in Antioch. And what do they do? They just began sharing Christ. And God blessed it. If you turn over a page, maybe it's a page. It's the same page in my Bible. But if you look back at Acts eleven twenty-one, you see it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. People began to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they repented of their sins. And they turned to the Lord in response to preaching of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jerusalem uh, heard about the things that were going on down there in Antioch, you know, they sent out Barnabas to see if what was going on there was a genuine work of the Lord or not. And Barnabas was a good choice we we studied, and the reason why is because he was a good man. He was a man full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And again, isn't that how you want people to see you? Man, how I desire to people, how I desire to be seen by people as a good man, as a man that's full of faith, willing to take steps of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. Well, we see as a result of Barnabas' ministry, even more people began coming to the Lord, right? It says in Acts eleven twenty four, a great many people were added to the Lord. I mean, there was such fruit. The work was so great. Barnabas understood, man, I need help. 
And then he remembers, right, his friend Saul of Tarsus. And we, we saw that Barnabas sought after Saul. He searched high and low for Saul. And when he had found him, it said, he brought him back to Antioch. And then for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul taught the people in Antioch the word of God. And they showed them how it pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, how the scriptures indicated in witness to Jesus as the Savior of the world. And we also saw how there was prophecy given by the Spirit uh, regarding this coming famine. And uh, what did the church in Antioch do with that information? Well, they determined to give. They determined to send relief to their brothers and sisters in Christ back in Jerusalem. And you know, as you just think over this stuff, to me, it just makes me say, wow. I mean, what a wonderful church. What a beautiful church. You know, and I think that it's a picture, I believe, of what the Lord wants for us as his church. I mean, they're sharing Christ, preaching Jesus Christ to unbelievers, resulting in people uh, coming to faith. People are getting saved. And then they're encouraging each other to run the race, teaching and discipling uh, believers from the word of God. And the church is to be a place where, you know, the gift of prophecy and all the gifts for that matter um, are to be exercised decently and in order, right? But for the edification of the church, for the exhortation and comfort of the church. And we can't overlook the fact that this church and God's heart for the church is to give generously of our time and of our resources. And again, I just believe that's God's heart for his bride, the church. So that's a recap of chapter 11. Now, after all of that, Acts, uh, Acts chapter 12 is kind of a meanwhile back in Jerusalem kind of story. As the focus of the early church is the the work of the early church is now going to be transitioning and become centered on Antioch. We're momentarily in Acts chapter 12 taken back to Jerusalem to see what's going on there. You know, you could easily um, write over this chapter. You could outline this chapter as God sees our trials, verses 1 through 4. God hears our prayers, verses 5 through 17. And God deals with our enemies, verses 18 to 25. And one of the things that we're going to see in this chapter is the early church is now identified as a group, right? And it's clearly hated by the Jewish people, by the Jews. Verse 1, it says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Sometimes, I think, sometimes... It's a common thing, I think. When you read the New Testament, it's easy to get confused because, you know, there's so many cities with the same name and there's so many people with the same name. And so that can be the case, I think, when you read about Herod, right? Uh, remember, it was Herod who ordered all the baby boys up to two years old uh, to be put to death in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus's birth, Right? That's why Joseph, being warned by an angel of the Lord, took Jesus and Mary and they fled to Egypt. And then when Herod died, then they returned to uh, Israel. They settled in Nazareth, right? Well, how then do you read in verse 1 here, Acts chapter uh, 12, verse 1, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass uh, some in the church, right? Well, the answer is this. You want to keep in mind, Herod is really more of a title than a name. Um, Matthew chapter 2, that Herod who ordered the uh, death of all the baby boys up to two years old was Herod the Great. He was a master builder. He built um, Masada. He built the Herodian, a lot of other different projects. He also uh, did the, did, was involved in the reconstruction of the temple. I mean, he was a big builder, but he was a little guy. I mean, he was like four feet, five inches tall. And he was a bad, bad man. Uh, 
He was a descendant of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had two boys, Esau and Jacob. Israel came from the line of Jacob. And Esau's descendants were the Idiom, uh, Edomites, right? Later, they were known to be known as the Edomians, right? And Herod the Great was an Edomian, Edomian. So he was half Jewish. Herod the Great, he liked the Jews. He wanted to be accepted by the Jews. He, he wanted their acceptance so much that he kept all the feasts. He lived a kosher lifestyle. Uh, he went as far uh, even as far as being circumcised. But none of that won him the acceptance from the Jews that he was seeking, right? Uh, the Jews despised Herod because he was an Idumean, right? Uh, he ruled over the Jewish people, and in their eyes, he wasn't Jewish. And as I said earlier, he was a bad man. He fell in love with a Jewess who was a descendant from the Maccabeans, right? Her name was uh, Mariamne, uh, and she was just one of eight wives that Herod had, right? He ended up killing her, <laughs> you know? She was one of at least six wives that Herod killed. And after he killed her, you know, he felt really bad about it. Uh, so what he did was he built a monument and remembrance, a monument in remembrance to her, and it was called the Tower of Mariamne, right? And before she died, she gave birth to a son named uh, Arist Aristobulus IV, Aristobulus IV. And he was one of at least 15 sons of Herod the Great that he killed. <laughs> he killed 15 of his boys, right? And that gave rise to the saying, it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Aristobulus uh, had a son. His name was Herod Agrippa I, okay? Because it was getting really dangerous to be a descendant of Herod the Great, Mary Amni sent Aristobulus to Rome where he became friends of a guy named Caligula. Caligula was a terribly um, depraved man also. And when he came to power, he put Herod Agrippa I uh, on the throne of Jerusalem because they were buddies, now, it's this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Later, Paul, he's going to stand before Herod in Acts chapter tw uh, 25 and 26. But that's Herod Agrippa II. Okay, so all that to say this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, is the grandson of Herod the Great. He also happens to be the nephew of Herod Antipas, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. You know, remember Pilate sent Jesus to Herod Antipas uh, in order to not have to pass judgment on Jesus. I mean, it's all super confusing. I hope that helps you out. Um, maybe, maybe it doesn't. Maybe I made it more confusing. I don't know. Uh, verse 1, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Herod, seeking approval of the Jews, began to persecute the church. And it was an attempt to prove his loyalty to the Jews. He had James and others arrested. He had James killed. And you need to understand, too, James wasn't the first Christian to be martyred. That was Stephen. But James was the first apostle to be martyred. You may recall, we read in the text that James was a brother of the apostle John. He was part of that special inner group, that inner circle of Jesus' followers. You remember the inner circle was made up of Peter, James, and John. Uh, they were with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they were the ones that were with Jesus when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the ones whom Jesus took deeper into the garden in order to pray with him when his soul was in great distress. Now, you would think that their close relationship with Jesus would afford them a certain amount of maybe special protection. But Jesus promised no special protection to those that 
would follow him, right? Instead, he actually warned them to be ready for persecution. Keep your finger here in Acts chapter 12 and flip over to Matthew 10. We're going to look at something that Jesus said in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, starting in verse 16. Are you there? Matthew 10, starting verse 16. Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. How comforting is that? How many sheep have you seen take down a wolf? (laughs) Doesn't happen. But hey, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for I will, uh, it will be given to you in that hour that you sh- what you should speak. For it's not you who speak, but the, the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father, his child, and children will raise up against uh, parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For as surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of the household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And the Bible makes no promise us uh, to us of special protection. In fact, the promise that the Bible does make is those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, flip back to Acts chapter 12. Now, verse 3. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. Herod saw that it pleased the Jews when James was arrested and beheaded. So he thought, wow, if, if they like that, I mean, just think how much they're going to like it, how much better, how happier they're going to be when I go after Peter, right? It was a purely a political decision to persecute the church, to curry favor with the Jews. Herod thought, why not? You know, what do I have to lose? I think that's something that we're, that we're going to see more and more in our country. Political persecution. Political people are happy to attack Christians in the church. Not just political persecution. We're going to see more and more persecution. And it's going to come in order that they can gain some political advantage so that they can boost their popularity, uh, sway liberal voters, and prove their political ratings. At least when Saul of Tarsus persecuted the church, it was out of a sincere, albeit misguided, idea of giving service to God. Herod here, I mean, he does it just to garner some political approval from people who don't even like him. Verse 3 continues, Now it was during the Passover of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Herod seizes Peter during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, intending to bring him before the people to execute him after the Passover. And you might be thinking, hey, what's going on here? I mean, the Passover is before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, and some people would even say, You know what? It's just another error in the Bible. You can't trust the Bible. It's full of errors. But you know what? We need to understand that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're interchangeable terms, right? Interchangeable terms for the eight days of celebration. First comes the Passover, 
followed by seven days, uh, which make up the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 4. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So Peter's chained <laughs> to two guards. And the other two guards, they're standing at the door, you know, uh, watching it, right? And these squads of four soldiers, they're uh, changed out. They rotate every six hours. Normally, it would have been enough to have a prisoner handcuffed to a single guard. So why all the extra security? It's because Peter's already escaped miraculously from prison back in Acts chapter 5. And Herod doesn't want that to happen again. Why did Herod wait until after the Passover, though, to execute Peter? Because it's against Jewish law to kill a man during Passover. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said Jesus was crucified during the Passover. And that's right. He was. I mean, when you study it, you find that everything about Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion was illegal. The religious leaders, they were so intent on getting rid of Jesus. I mean, they didn't want to hear another teaching. They didn't want to see another miracle. They didn't want to witness another healing. They just wanted him dead. And because they wanted him dead, they plotted and schemed to put him to death in spite of the law. And the reason they did it was out of envy. They were afraid of losing their positions of authority. In verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The word but, more often than not, it's a contrasting word, right? And what a beautiful contrast we have here. Peter, Peter is bound in prison, but prayer was loosed, right? The church began to pray and they prayed and they pressed in for the eight days of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what a difference prayer makes. We cannot miss this. We cannot miss this. I think it's admitted by the Holy Spirit, but I'm convinced that it was the prayer of the saints that was the deciding factor in Peter's release. I'm certain that's what the Lord wants us to see in this account. I mean, think about it for a second, okay? There's no record of the church praying for the release of James. Maybe they prayed. Maybe they didn't. We're just not told. But maybe they thought, why bother? I mean, it's James. I mean, he's one of Jesus' closest boys. Why bother praying? Maybe they thought, as so many believers think today, why should we pray? God's will is going to happen regardless. Why waste the time? I think it's interesting that James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in James 4.2, he said, you do not have because you do not ask. Why are we so slow to pray? Why do we have to learn things the hard way? Why, why does there have to be some difficult, some tragedy come into our lives before we, we think, man, maybe I should pray? You know, what difference does prayer make? You know, I, I don't really know. Tell you the truth, I don't really know. I wish we could ask James and ask him what he thought. You know what? James was beheaded, I think, because the church failed to intercede for him. But when the church begins to pray on behalf of Peter, he's going to be freed. Now, it's true. We can't lose sight of this. It's true. You can never lose sight of this. God has a sovereign plan. His will will be accomplished. But at the same time, he has sovereignly decided to move when his people pray. This is something that's vital for us to understand. 
Prayer is a primary weapon in our warfare, right? When we go to our knees, the enemy trembles. But too often, we we do not have because we do not ask. And when we ask, we either ask amiss, hoping to spend it on our selfish pleasures, or we ask without faith. Verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The word constant there has the idea of earnest prayer, right? It carries with it a word picture of someone stretching as far as they can they can to reach something. It's kind of like that prisoner, you know, that's straining, reaching through the bars, trying to grab that key that, that is just placed out of his reach, just to torture him, right? I think too much of our prayers lack earnestness. Now, I don't know about you, but honestly, I think all too often, you know, I pray and it's just words. You know, there's no faith or passion behind it. And I, I think that's common for a lot of people. And I think it's like we want God to care about it more than we do. We want God to do something. But if he does it, you know what? We're okay with it. All right. Earnest prayer has power. Not because it can persuade a reluctant God. No, that's not the case. That's absolutely not the case. Earnest prayer has power because it demonstrates our helplessness, you know, our dependency on God, you know, as well as our passion for the things that God cares for. Earnest prayer aligns my heart with God's heart. It's, you know, I'm to present my petition and plead with God to do all that's in his heart. I'm pleading with him to do all that's in his heart for his glory in this circumstance. Right? God has sovereignly chosen to work through the prayer of his saints in order to teach us, I think, how to talk with him, how to walk with him, how to depend on him so that in ages to come, communication will have already been established with him so that we'll be able to rule and reign on behalf of him because we've come to know his heart. Right? And it's through prayer that we get to see God do amazing things because when we pray, our eyes are open and expectant. The Puritan preacher, Thomas Watson, he said, the angel fetched Peter, but prayer fetched the angel. And I love that. Verse 6 And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound by two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now, put yourself in Peter's shoes. What would you be doing the night before you were to be executed? Right? I find it incredible. Peter's sleeping. I mean, like, how is it even possible? You know? I think it's because Peter's not only a man of the word, not only does he know God's word, but he believes God's word. And he's resting in God's promises. Psalms 4.8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I believe that Peter trusted in the Lord, held tightly to him and his promises in wonderful belief of God's word. And that's why Peter was able to write and encourage so many believers down through history, saying, 1 Peter 1, 2, 21 and 20 through 23, for to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow uh, his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Peter was inst- Peter has also instructed us to cast all our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. That's 1 Peter 5, 7. I believe that while Peter was in his prison cell, he was blanketed with peace that surpassed uh, understanding. All of it which only comes from God. What about you? You know, when you're faced with situations that you don't understand, when you're facing difficulties and trials, when you feel imprisoned, you know, and you're unable to to break free, get away, do you know and rest upon God's word? Are you confidently trusting in God's promises? Right? When you're facing difficulties and trying times, you know, there's a passage I think that we all should run to. And I want you to know where it is, so I'm going to ask you to turn to it. It's Romans chapter 4. Keep your finger here in Acts 12. Flip over to Romans chapter 4. Starting in verse 19, it says, And not being weak in faith, he, speaking about Abraham here, not being weak in faith, he did not, Consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. I mean, the Bible tells us that without faith, it's impossible for us to please God. But with faith, all things are possible. Now flip back to Acts chapter 12, verse 7. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them uh, of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. Just look at how at peace and, and uh, what a sound sleeper Peter is here. I mean, the angel has to poke him and jab him in the ribs just to wake him up. Right? And when Peter woke up, his chains fell off. Then the angel tells him, hey, put on your shoes, get dressed, and follow me. And Peter obeys, and he follows the angel. Now, there are three things here that I think are very instructive for us, very important for us to see. First is, Peter had to get up. He had to put on his shoes. He had to get dressed. He had to follow the angel. I mean, all of that's pretty uh, pretty much Ordinary things to do, right? Fairly ordinary tasks that needed to be done before God could do the miraculous, right? And I think that God often combines the ordinary with the miraculous. That's, there's often a part that we have to do so that miracles can take place. The second thing I think we need to notice is, a, is Peter could could have heard the angel say, get up. And he could have sat there thinking to himself, it's just a dream. And then go back to sleep, right? Had Peter not acted in obedience, he would have died there in prison. My point is this. Even though Peter wasn't sure it was real, he acted upon it as if it was real, right? I wonder how many of us, other Christians for that matter, 
But I wonder how many of us go to Bible study. You know, we hear the word of God being taught. Maybe even we take notes. Maybe even, you know, we nod our heads in agreement. Once in a while, we might even say, amen, hallelujah. But then never act on the things that we hear. You know, and as a result, you know, I wonder how many Christians remain imprisoned, bound by their situation because they fail to put into practice what they've learned, what they've heard, thinking, you know, it may not be real. How do I know? I mean, what if it's a waste of time? How can I be sure? I mean, it's too good to be true anyway. A f common phrase in America is, take it easy. But it's not what Christianity says. Christianity says, take a chance. We'll never experience what God has for us unless we step out in faith and act upon the things that we're told to do. Peter walked on water at the bidding of Jesus. I mean, how exciting must have that been? But it takes faith. It takes faith to step out of the comfort of the boat, right? It takes a determination that, you know what? I'm going to do it because Jesus said it. Sometimes we step out in faith and find out, oh, it was just a dream. You know, when we lived in Germany, Tina and I thought God was moving us to England. I was invited to, to establish a pastor's college in England. So we thought that was God's heart, man. And so, you know what? We took a step of faith. We came back to the States. We, we began working on raising support, and it didn't work out. We, we couldn't get any traction. After a year, we said, oh, well, you know. And I think that what we learned was it's okay when things don't work out. It's okay. Personally, I would rather find out that something wasn't God's heart or plan for me than regret never having taken that step of faith. Proverbs 14.4, one of, one of my favorite verses, where no oxen are, the troughs are clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Some people are content to say, I've never messed up, right? I've never made a mistake following a vision that wasn't real. Look how clean my barn is. And that person may have a clean barn, <laughs> but there's no increase either. It's the farmer that has stalls filled with cows, cow pies all over the barn floor, flies every place. He's the farmer that's productive and prosperous. So, you know, I think the lesson is to follow the vision God gives you. Take a step of faith. Step out in faith, acting on the instructions you've received, following uh, the Lord's leading. And at the very worst, you know what? You might have a stall or two that gets a little messy. But on the other hand, God might do something miraculous, right? And set you free from those things that bind you, just like he does for Peter. The third thing that I think is worth noticing, I think it's found in verse 10. Peter passes the first guard post. Then he quietly sneaks past maybe the second guard post. Maybe there is, he goes past the second guard post, but maybe supposition on my part, he quietly sneaks past. I don't know. But then what happens? He comes to the iron gate. And if you're like me, I think we can say, okay, it looks like God's doing something special. I mean, we got past the, the first obstacle. We got past the second, the guard post. But then we come to the iron gate. And we say, how am I ever going to get past this one? Right? Sure, God has got me past the guards. But hey, listen, this is an iron gate. There's no way I'm getting past it. But listen to this. The reality is this. You know what? Guards are nothing to God. Iron gates are nothing to God. In fact, nothing is too hard for our God. We must never give up when faced with what seems to be an impossible challenge in our eyes. We need to follow after God and just understand 
that there's going to be bumps and obstacles along the way. And it's the enemy, in fact. He's not happy with you charging after God. He's not happy with you taking steps of faith. So he's, he's the one that's going to put those obstacles in your way. He's going to one that's going to put those bumps in the road in front of you to make you afraid so that you'll turn back. But just look at what it says about the iron gate as Peter came face to face with it. It says it opened to them of its own accord. Right? The phrase of its own accord, it's a single word in the Greek. Right? It's automatos. Now, it's where we get the word automatically, right? God delivers Peter at the last minute. The iron gate opens automatically just as he approaches it. Again, not a minute before. It's at the last minute. It shows us that God's timing is always perfect. Sometimes I wonder how many frustrations we can avoid, how many frustrations I can avoid if we would just wait on God with expectation, if we would just allow him to direct us, if, if we would just let him lead us, if we would just wait on him for his timing, his perfect timing. All we need to be is obedient and act upon God's word and follow after him and then let him take care of everything else. Right? And I believe if we'll commit to that in our lives, then he'll open doors for us. I believe it with all my heart. Verse 12. Now, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, uh, where many were gathered together uh, praying. Now, this is probably the upper room, right? Where, where Peter comes, the, the house of John Mark, Right? This is probably the upper room where they met for the Lord's Supper, uh, where Jesus appeared to them that Sunday after his crucifixion. Right, And this John Mark that's mentioned here, he's the one that goes with Paul and Barnabas on the first mission trip. He also wrote the Gospel of Mark. And it says that they gather together to pray. I think the Bible repeatedly reveals to us whenever the church, whenever God's people We'll gather together to pray. That's when God will move. Verse 13 says, And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Rhoda, her name means Rose. She's a young girl. She's probably about 12, 14 years of age. Verse 14, When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. What they're saying is, Rhoda, you're crazy, right? You're out of your mind. Don't be an idiot. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said to her, it's his angel. And I kind of find that interesting, don't you? Right? I mean, it just seems to me like there's a lot of angels doing a lot of things in the New Testament. An angel spoke to Mary that she was going to have a baby. An angel spoke to Joseph. Right? Tradition tells us that an angel would disturb the waters at the pool of Bethesda. And the first one that went into the waters would be healed. Acts chapter 5. You know, an angel delivered all the apostles from jail. Acts chapter 10. We saw an angel speak to uh, Cornelius. Here in our chapter, it's an angel that, that delivers Peter. And now they say, pay no never mind, Rhoda to what's going on out there. It's probably just Peter's angel at the door. It's no big deal. I mean, but I think if an angel appeared today, people would run to go see him. And it makes me wonder, is it because we've lost focus on Jesus? You know? And now people are looking for anything spiritual, regardless of the source. That's what we see going on, I think, in our world. How I pray that we would be people that are always focused on Jesus Christ and that we would never lose sight of him or take our eyes off of him. But isn't it funny though? Isn't it just like us? They're praying, being full of faith. <laughs> but when their prayers were answered, they thought, there's no way, don't be ridiculous, that's impossible. Their prayers were from the heart 
but they actually had little faith that their prayers would be answered. And I tell you what, this is so very encouraging to me. Jesus said, Matthew 17, 20, I say unto you, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I need to understand. We need to be fully convinced. Little faith accomplishes great things when our faith is placed in our great God. Right? Prayer gets things moving. It makes things happen. Prayer opens doors. 1 Peter uh, 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. Verse 16, Acts chapter 12. Now, Peter continued knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. James is the half-brother of Jesus. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. And he's seemingly the leader of the church, the early church in Jerusalem. And we come to that conclusion from this verse, but also from Acts chapter 15 and Galatians 2. Verse 19, then as, so, uh, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Verse 18 says there was no small, small stir. That is one of the great understatements of the New Testament, I tell you, right? Herod is outraged. He's furious. He's, you know, steaming hot, red hot. And unfortunately, these 16 soldiers were put to death. It was customary for the soldiers to suffer the fate of their prisoners if they were to escape. Well, this is where we're going to end it here today. <clears throat> and you know, just by way of, of uh, some thoughts that are a little closer to home for us as I was doing this, you know, I just, it always strikes me. I'm always amazed how God has us where he has us in the Bible just at the right time. You know, we're, we're right where we need to be as a church body, I think. What's binding you today? What's got you tied up and imprisoned? You know what the answer is? Prayer. The answer is faith. God's not done with any of us. And I hope that the things that we've been going through as a church, I hope the things that we're facing as a church doesn't have you in knots. I mean, really, let's pray. Let's press in. That's the answer. Let's lift it up to the throne of grace. God sees our situation. God hears our prayers. An angel fetched Peter but prayer fetched the angel. I mean, do you understand that today? When the church begins to pray and pray in earnest, right? God begins to move. It's just the way it is. The Bible says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those that love him. We love him, right? I believe that Jesus would say to this morning, do not fear. This is one of my favorite verses. Luke 12, 32. Again, if, if you don't have this one underlined, memorized, you need to. Jesus said, do not fear, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not done with any of us. He is at work in our lives, in our midst. We just need to exercise some faith. Faith in our God whose thoughts towards us are good thoughts. You know, I truly believe if God, uh, God is here, if we have ears to hear him this morning, right? He would, he would tell us that the things that he's doing, Jeff has said this, it's brought it to my attention quite a few times in the last few weeks. If God were to tell us what it is that he's doing, we wouldn't have room to take it in. 
we wouldn't believe it. We would say, that's impossible. You know what? Let's be people not like the church that wasn't praying for James. Let's be like the people here in our passage of encouragement from our passage, like Peter who's holding tight to God's promises, you know, who trust in God's word, who are willing to rest in him, right? Let's be people who are willing to wait for his perfect timing, knowing that he who promised is able, right? Let's not waver at his promises in light of our, and we can't see God's word through the lens of our circumstance. We have to see our circumstance through the lens of God's word. Let's put into action. Let's act upon those things that God is teaching us and speaking to us over the last weeks, months, years. Let's put those things into action, the things that he's teaching us through the word. I'm convinced if we will do it, then God will deliver. God will open doors. God will lead us out. It may be at the last minute. It may be just at the nick of time, but he'll do it. And it will leave us confessing, man, God's timing so perfect. No, that was it, you know. But it's going to take faith on our part. It's going to take faith. We need to let go and let God do what God and only God can do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I am so encouraged uh, in your word with this study, in my devotion, reading, reading Haggai uh, this week. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word, your presence, when we take the time to just sit with you, just to commune with you, just to quiet our hearts in your presence. Lord, I'm so thankful that you're willing to speak to us through your word willing to impress upon our heart your will, willing to, to lead us and guide us and confirm those things to our lives, Lord. I just pray as a church, Father, that we would take these things to heart, that we would press in and we would ask, Lord, for your guidance. We would ask for your uh, timing. We would ask for your vision, your direction. Lord, and we would respond in faith. Lord, we love you. We love you. And we th we're thankful, Lord, that you're not done with any of us. You got great plans for us going forward. And it's not just something I say, just to encourage others. Lord, that's what the Bible says. Lord, thank you. Your thoughts towards us are good thoughts. Thoughts for a future and a hope, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise and glory. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.